In 1866, Dr David Livingstone left England on an expedition to find the source of the Nile. It was a badly funded and ill-organised adventure. But the truth was that Livingstone just couldn't wait to get away from Britain. His earlier expedition to the Zambezi River had been lavishly backed by the government and had ended in humiliating disarray. Most of his missionaries had died. The Zambezi, which Livingstone had confidently promised would be a way to carry trade to the interior of Africa, turned out to be useless. His personal objective had been to find a way to end the African slave trade, and on that he had achieved nothing at all. His book about the trip had been heavily criticised by exactly the London geography establishment that had previously been the best of his backers. A new breed of cheap, popular newspapers, which had mushroomed while he'd been on his expedition, had kept his story running because it was a tale of human adventure and courage, which is what their readers wanted. But smart London society, the people with the money to pay for expeditions, had been turning their back on the doctor. No wonder he'd been so anxious to return to Africa. And now, just months into his new adventure, reports began reaching Zanzibar that Livingstone was dead. Hello, good to see you at the History Cafe. This is where we come to talk about historical stories everyone knows. We want to try out some new ideas. I'm Penelope Middlebow. And I'm John Roseback, and we're revisiting stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. At the end of 1866, the Royal Geographical Society in London, hearing reports that Livingstone was dead, sent an expedition to find him. Now, the RGS had only invested a small amount of money in Livingstone's expedition, but losing an explorer was bad for publicity, and, <laughs> and sending a rescue mission was a good way to raise more funds for more exploring. Actually, the RGS often sent rescue expeditions to find lost explorers. They sent a series of missions to look for a ship, the Erebus, Erebus, yeah. the Erebus which had gone missing in 1845, looking for the Northwest Passage. That search had stuttered on voyage after voyage for 14 years. The truth was that Livingstone wasn't dead. That was just the story deserters from his party had told to cover their tracks. In fact, the doctor wasn't even really lost. Whenever he could find anyone going to the coast, he'd been sending messages to his friend and fellow doctor John Kirk, who'd been on his Zambezi expedition and was now the British consul in Zanzibar. But it's true that Livingstone was certainly struggling. His letters to Kirk called urgently for more supplies, describing what he called his severe hunger. The problem was that hardly any of his messages were getting through. And when Kirk did finally send new supplies to the village of Ujiji, as Livingstone had asked him to, they were just stolen. The RGS rescue expedition of 1866 then thrashed around the area for several months without ever catching up with Livingstone. Kirk, in fact, came to believe that the doctor had been deliberately avoiding them. Well, I think he had. But at least it was clear from the reports of local people that Livingstone was still alive. Livingstone had, in fact, been making his way slowly towards Lake Tanganyika. He was supposed, you remember, to be looking for the source of the Nile. But in January 1867, the men carrying his important chronometers fell and dropped them, meaning that his geographical calculations were never quite accurate anymore. 
And then two weeks later, the man carrying his medicine chest deserted, taking all the medicines with him. Livingston wrote in his journal that it was, quote, the sentence of death. Well, given the number of fevers and infections he was always catching, it was an understandable verdict. By the time Livingston reached the lake, he only had five of the 60 men he'd started out with, and he was seriously sick himself. He was only saved in the end by a notorious slave trader, Tipu Tip. Now, we all know that Livingston had often said that his greatest ambition was to end the slave trade, so it couldn't have been more ironic. By the end of 1871, after more than four years of painful and largely pointless wandering about, filling in well, just a few more details about the lakes and rivers he was trying to understand, but no closer to discovering the source of the Nile, his scientific instruments now increasingly inaccurate, and the slave traders as busy as ever, Livingston's life was in fact hanging by a thread. Now, had his story ended at this point, he would hardly be remembered now at all. His first book, Missionary Travels, had been a popular success for a while, although as soon as anyone went to check out his findings, they discovered that the book was often wrong. In fact, it was often seriously misleading. The missionary societies and the abolitionists and the Royal Geographical Society, led by Livingston's best patron, Sir Roderick Murchison, had tried to keep interest in him going for as long as possible. There'd even been a long biography written by Henry Adams, an abolitionist from Canterbury in Kent, Followed it up a year or two later with a children's edition, The Weaver Boy Who Became a Missionary. The expedition diary of the 1866 Royal Geographical Society rescue attempt had been edited for publication by Horace Waller, Livingston's friend, a fellow missionary and abolitionist. But, well, frankly, if that's all there had been, Livingston would soon have been consigned to historical footnotes. Uh, he might have been remembered by a few historians as an extraordinary individual driven by an indomitable passion to end the slave trade, but nonetheless a man of his time, conventional in his views and less wise than he imagined. Oh, and impossible to work with, used by both Africans and British alike for their own ends. He'd been wrong in most of his geographical speculations. A missionary without converts with little to show for his years of endurance. By the time Livingston had returned to Africa in 1866, even King Sekaletu's Kololo people, the Africans who'd made Livingston's first daring journeys possible, had been wiped out by neighbouring peoples. You see, the reason we're still talking about Livingston now has nothing to do with anything he achieved. Can you say that again, John? Uh, the reason we're still talking about <laughs> Livingston now has nothing to do with anything he achieved. It's because he was caught up in the middle of an extraordinary whirlwind that was, just at that moment, transforming the British and American newspaper press. In 1869, Livingston's friend Horace Waller wrote to him that he was now surrounded with, quote, a halo of romance such as you can't imagine. Well, it was true, and it had nothing to do with Livingston's supposed achievements and everything to do with the cheap new daily newspapers that had been appearing. Livingston was just one of the first individuals to acquire that halo of romance that is the essential equipment for modern tabloid celebrities. 
Now, when Livingstone had first attracted popular attention in the mid-1850s, Britain's rather dull press had mostly been reprinting dry factual accounts from the serious London papers. But by the later 1860s, a whole new breed of cheap, trashy daily papers like the Daily Telegraph... Which, of course, at that time was funding itself through smutty ads that respectable papers wouldn't touch... (laughs) You love that, don't you, John? ...were filling their pages with gossipy news and human interest. Within a few years, the competition for news and stories of human suffering and adventure was enormous. It hasn't gone away, really, has it? That transformation gathered pace after Britain's telegraph system was nationalised between 1868 and 1870. And now the Press Association appeared, gathering news from across the world and sharing it across the country. So, well, reports that Dr Livingstone was lost or dead uh, and then found, or perhaps not, were enough to keep his romantic halo flickering away for the time being in these cheap new daily papers. The reading public wasn't interested at all in the well-publicised failures of his research into African geography. What mattered to them was the story of a brave man lost alone somewhere in Africa. Winning a popular halo of romance would be a key reason that explorers would go on risking their lives at the ends of the earth until they finally climbed Mount Everest 80 years later. And we'll look into it, won't we? And you could make a good case that Livingstone, just by living at the moment he did, was the very first of them. In 1871, the British consul John Kirk sent yet another party to bring Livingstone back to Zanzibar. They found him at Bambari in the modern-day Congo, where Livingstone had actually been for a year and a half, sick with a series of life-threatening infections, including 80 days in which he hadn't been able to leave his hut. Historians Adrian Wisnicki, I hope I pronounced that right, and Megan Ward have discovered that Livingstone kept a detailed journal of these frustrating months of his illness, writing on scraps of paper, often over the top of printed pages, in ink now so faded it has to be read under special light. They show the doctor struggling to understand a complex African society in this particularly troubled area with its endless skirmishes with Arab slave traders and elements of cannibalism. Well, they are now an important source for anthropologists, although at the time Livingstone himself edited it all down into brief summaries. And when his friend Waller published them after his death, hardly any of these important details of African life were left. But the important thing for us is that by the time Kirk's rescue mission arrived, Livingstone had just three remaining companions. Of the 60 that he set out with. Yeah, of the 60. He was confused about what the date was. He seemed obsessed with mythical fountains that he now believed must be the source of the Nile. While he refused to go back to the coast with Kirk's men, Together, they managed to get him as far as Ujiji, where yet again their supplies had been stolen. Fact was that Livingstone was now as close to the end as he had been when we first encountered him, stumbling, you remember, into Luanda on the West African coast 17 years before. Now he wrote in his journal, referring back, of course, to the story of the Good Samaritan, quote, I felt in my destitution as if I were the man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. But I couldn't hope for a priest or a Levite or a good Samaritan to come by on either side. But then, just four days after Livingstone wrote those words, a white stranger strode in, removed his newly chalked white hat and said, Dr Livingstone, I presume.
October 1871, Livingston was at Ujiji on the shore of Lake Tanganyika. He felt abandoned and close to death. And then a white stranger strode into the village, his extremely well-appointed party waving a large American stars and stripes. <laughs> he removed his newly white chalked hat and said, Dr Livingston, I presume. Henry Morton Stanley was never allowed to forget those four words, which were quickly made to seem ridiculous and pretentious, the butt of music hall jokes. Actually, it was not a completely unreasonable thing to say, and anyway, Stanley may not have said it. He later destroyed that part of his diary. Above all, it was what you might expect a reporter to say to a man who was a celebrity. All we know is that Stanley reported that he'd said it, and that nothing with Henry Morton Stanley was ever quite what it seemed. Because both Livingston and Stanley had lost track of the date, we can't even be sure exactly when they met, save that it was sometime at the end of October or the beginning of November 1871. Two years before, in October 1869, Stanley had been summoned to a hotel room in Paris. There he had found James Gordon Bennett in bed. Gordon, the Commodore Bennett, Jr., was the proprietor and editor-in-chief of the New York Herald. His father, a Scotsman who'd emigrated to New York, had established the Herald in 1835. Using the rapidly developing technologies of printing and news gathering, Bennett Sr. had turned the Herald into one of America's leading popular dailies. It had boomed in the 1850s and 1860s, reporting on the Crimean War and then the American Civil War. It was among the very first examples of the racy, so-called new journalism that would later spawn the Daily Telegraph and the Morning Star and other cheap dailies in Britain. The Telegraph was in fact said to be a diluted version of the Herald, wittier and less news-oriented, with a flimsy style that respectable people sneered at as telegraph ease. I've often heard of that. Bennett's New York Herald, in fact, worked closely with the British Telegraph and had always made a proportion of its money from exactly the same species of small ads for abortions and sexual services that notoriously the Telegraph carried then. But as Bennett Senior said... Business is business. Money is money. What exactly the 28-year-old playboy Gordon Bennett Jr. was doing in bed in Paris in October 1869, we don't actually know. He was famous for yachting, which was why he was called the Commodore, and also uh, for riding a coach and horses through town wearing nothing but a silk top hat. Nothing. But he had once been educated in Paris and would later retire there. In 1866, the first viable transatlantic cable had been laid from the west coast of Ireland to Newfoundland, and the New York Herald had established its first office in London. Now, European and British news could be on the newsstands in New York the next morning. Throughout the 1860s, tension was high in Europe as Bismarck's Prussia launched a series of attacks on its neighbours. Everyone knew the Prussians were winding up towards a full frontal attack on France. So, in his Paris hotel, Gordon, the Commodore Bennett, was in the right place at the right time for a good story, without even getting out of bed. <laughs> Back in 1868, the Herald's London bureau chief, Colonel Finlay Anderson, had had the idea that the paper could send a special correspondent to find Dr Livingston. 
Of course, everyone in the know had a pretty good idea where Livingston was, since, as we've seen, he was in contact with his old friend John Kirk, the British consul in Zanzibar. He had been ordering supplies to be sent to the village of Ujiji on the shore of Lake Tanganyika. Livingston's letters were still regularly being read to the Royal Geographical Society and reprinted in the serious papers. But the popular press had been keeping the rumours going that Livingston was missing or had been murdered. And the notion that this famous explorer was again destitute somewhere in the interior of Africa, all on his own, as was beginning to seem his habit, was, well, impossibly romantic. So Colonel Anderson argued that sending its own special correspondent to find him would be the perfect stunt for the New York Herald, a headline manufacturing machine to parade its superior American financial clout and its worldwide coverage and leave all the other papers in its wake. It would also be one in the eye for the Royal Geographical Society and London's stuffy geographers. Henry Morton Stanley was, according to the story he told, born in Wales and had fetched up in a Liverpool workhouse. He'd somehow got to America, worked on a cotton plantation, fought on both sides in the Civil War... Both sides? ...run away from the US Navy and ended up as a reporter for the New York Herald in Abyssinia. In Abyssinia? And the reason, in October 1869, Gordon, the Commodore Bennett Jr., the paper's proprietor and editor, had summoned Stanley to Paris was, of course to offer him the job of... Finding Livingston. Actually, neither Colonel Anderson, nor Commodore Bennett, nor Henry Morton Stanley were very bothered about whether Livingston was alive or dead. <laughs> By the time Stanley was discussing it with Bennett in October 1869, after all, they'd already been talking about it for around a year. And the fact was that from his hotel room in Paris, Bennett sent Stanley not to East Africa at all, but to Egypt and then to Jerusalem and then on to Constantinople and then the Crimea and then Persia and eventually India in search of <laughs> other stories. <laughs> before, <laughs> In the meantime, Bismarck's Prussia had at last invaded France. It had defeated it within six weeks and then used the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles to declare a new united country of Germany. Once more, the Herald had excelled itself, reporting quickly developing events in record time. Its descriptions of the battles in Europe had reached New York in hours. Well, the languishing Dr Livingston could wait. It wasn't until early 1871, as the German story had at last quieted down, that the millionaire Commodore at last sent Stanley to Africa finally instructing him that he was to head for Zanzibar and start his search for Livingston. He told him that expense was no object. So Stanley had thrashed his way unceremoniously a thousand kilometres inland from Zanzibar and made for Ujiji. By his own account, he was typical of a particularly ruthless kind of mid-century white traveller in Africa, beating the Africans he employed, arguing with the Europeans getting tangled up in the local wars in which some of his men were killed. You can't help wondering, had Livingston known the kind of man who walked into Gigi that day and the morally dodgy part pornographic outfit that he represented, whether he might have replied differently to the reporter's famous question. Who? Livingston? Oh, I'm sorry, he left last month. <laughs> But of course, Livingston had been continually out of England, except for about four years since 1841. He'd barely heard of the so-called new journalism and its continual demand for romantic stories and scoops. And the fact was that he was badly in need of help. 
Stanley was, uh, at least by his own account, transfixed by Livingstone. His quiet patience, his apparent understanding of the Africans and their loyalty to him. The generous supplies that Stanley was carrying brought Livingstone back to life. Recalling the original purpose of his expedition, the two of them trekked together to the north of Lake Tanganyika and established that it was not, as Livingstone had supposed, the source of the Nile. Once more, the Doctor had been wrong, but even so, and despite the old man's unattractively bitter talk about almost anyone he'd ever worked with, Stanley grew to admire him, as he never admired anyone else. Not that, as his future career would horribly demonstrate, he moderated his behaviour towards the Africans very much. But by supposedly finding Livingstone, he'd given himself a passport to fame and discovered a new career exploring Africa. For Livingstone, or at least for his reputation, the meeting changed everything, because it was Stanley and the New York Herald who transformed the tabloid's briefly romantic darling into a lasting legend of empire. But there would be one more surprise before that would be possible. For historians, the moment that Stanley met Livingstone is a symbolic turning point. Historical geographer Felix Driver suggests that Livingstone was perhaps the last of the mid-19th century explorers. He'd travelled light, with scientific instruments in hand, charting, hypothesising, dreaming of a partnership between Africans and British in which everyone would benefit. He admired and struggled hard to understand the Africans, picturing their lands as a kind of troubled paradise. Stanley had different illusions. He would smash his way through Africa, taking what he wanted and laying the foundations for the shocking colonial scramble of occupation that would follow. Stanley's was exploration driven by the delusion that it could impose European values on Africans, supposedly because they needed civilising, controlling and converting, but in practice because they could be exploited. Now, as Driver points out, it was never as simple as one kind of exploration replacing another. These were two among many strands that always marched together. But there was a clear tilting of the balance from the one to the other, and we can date it, symbolically anyway, to that day at Ujiji when Stanley met Livingstone. It made that meeting deeply poignant, enduring and ultimately ironic. Once he'd been taken up by Stanley, the gentle, sensitive Livingston was quickly turned into the patron saint of the brutal British colonisation of Africa. Thugs like Stanley and later Cecil Rhodes would do the dirty business. Livingston's saintly reputation loaned it all a romantic halo of respectability. So sad. And in the encounter between Livingston, the scientist and author, and Stanley, the journalist, something else changed too, this time quickly and in a concrete way. From then on, heroes would not be made through academic or travel writing, but by a new breed of popular newspapers. Stanley stayed with Livingston for four months until March 1872 and then left him with enough supplies for four years. Back at Zanzibar, Stanley came across yet another Royal Geographical Society expedition preparing to relieve Livingston. It even included Oswald Livingston, one of the explorer's own sons. But hearing Stanley's account, the consul, John Kirk, decided there was no point in risking more lives trying to help Livingston anymore. The doctor was now well supplied by Stanley 
And he'd made it clear that he was determined not to return to Britain until the slave trade was finished. Oswald Livingston was already unwell and the season wasn't good for a thousand kilometre trek. So they cancelled the expedition and Oswald would not see his father again. Stanley, of course, used the decision to take even more of the credit for being the only one who could find Livingston. Well, the news of Stanley's expedition, but not yet its result, had first been broken in the New York Herald on the 22nd of December 1871. In fact, while Stanley was still at Ujiji with the doctor, the Herald puffed it up as the first ever American expedition of exploration. The Buffalo Express... That's the paper from Buffalo, Texas. ...called it the most extraordinary newspaper enterprise ever dreamed of. Having got the story running, Gordon (laughs) Bennett Jr. then had to keep up a steady stream of African stories while waiting for Stanley to come through. In January 1872, Bennett dispatched the journalist Alvin S. Southworth into the Sudan in search of the British explorer Sir Samuel Baker. Who was in fact no more lost than Livingston had been. (laughs) No, but he was conveniently rather near at hand. (laughs) Southworth, of course, uh, found Baker. He then gleefully reported that Baker's British expedition... ...has been conducted too much after the fashion of the British tourist. Too many theodolites... Barometers, sextons and artificial horizons have replaced canned (laughs) meats and desiccated necessities. I am of the opinion, hastily formed perhaps, that 12 energetic, live, I might say reckless Americans, each with his special mental and physical gifts, could bear this whole continent to the view of an anxious mankind. Ah, the British are good, hardy, stubborn travellers, but they are like their journalism and their ideas, slower than the wrath of the Grecian gods. (laughs) You hardly need to look any further. What what did they mean, bear this whole continent? They can exploit it for the whole of mankind, throw it open. Ah, yeah. You hardly need to look any further for a sign of the changing of the guard. Out with the gentle barometers and theodolites and in with the energetic and reckless stripping pair of the continent. It was also the Herald's editorial line to play up British weakness and contrast it for all it was worth with American muscle. And once more, Livingston was carried along in a wave of myth-making that had nothing to do with anything he had or hadn't achieved, but everything to do with the times in which he lived. Now the Herald got into its Livingston stride. On the 2nd of May 1872, it exuberantly reported the grand triumph of American enterprise with the news that its as yet unnamed reporter had found Livingston. And what's more, the Herald's man had done it in the teeth of stuffy British scepticism. Well, I'll be hog-bollard, as you might have said in Indiana. (laughs) You might. (laughs) Even better, newspapers on both sides of the Atlantic now began arguing over whether the story was true, giving Bennett Jr. even more yards and yards of free publicity. The controversy eventually even had Earl Granville, the British Foreign Secretary, writing to the Times. The Earl thought the Herald's story was true. He did indeed, yeah. Now, Henry Morton Stanley's name came out, along with a version of his past now claiming... He'd been born not in Wales, but in Nebraska, American. His own arrival back in Europe and then in Britain on the 1st of August 1872 kept the headlines coming. The Herald could now print letters that Stanley claimed he had brought from Livingston himself, once again provoking a satisfying storm of speculation that they were nothing but fakes codded up by Stanley himself. 
The geographers at the Royal Geographical Society huffed that it probably was Livingston who'd found Stanley and not the other way around. <laughs> but now it was Stanley who was having an audience with Queen Victoria. He also rapidly brought out his own book, How I Found Livingston, with an illustration of the famous meeting entitled Dr Livingston, I presume, showing the stars and stripes waving prominently above their heads. You can see it on our website. The book would eventually outsell even Livingston's own missionary travels. That's crazy. But by then, Stanley had moved on. He arrived in New York on the 20th of November 1872, now billed as a native New Yorker. Not from Nebraska. Nor from Wales, no. And he was touted around town as the new sensation. Soon he was setting off on his own lecture tour, starting with New York in December. By this time, the Herald had been running its Livingston story for an entire year. That's amazing. Stanley was reportedly paid $10,000 for his lecture tour. But he turned out to be a poor speaker, unlike Livingston, and found himself addressing halls that were half empty and taciturn. As the Herald's rival paper, the Sunday Mercury, gloatingly commented... Nobody cares anything about Africa. Stanley sank for some months back into relative obscurity. And for a moment, the Livingston story looked like it might finally fade away like every other tabloid sensation. But then everything changed yet again and set the tabloid pulses racing. In January 1874, news arrived that Livingston was dead. Again? Again. Now the whole merry-go-round of newspaper razzmatazz cranked into life again. But this time, Henry Morton Stanley had an inspiration. If Livingston were dead, he, Stanley, would complete Livingston's exploration of Africa. The Herald sniffed another patriotic sensation. The Americans would take over where the British had so obviously yet again failed to get the job done. Their reporter, it said, would command an expedition more numerous and better appointed than any that has ever entered Africa. Well, this time the London Telegraph came in and from 1874 to 1877, Stanley, triumphantly financed and tracked by his tabloid backers, would stake out his reputation as a ghastly, grisly, but grimly effective explorer, faking treaties with African peoples and seizing their lands. And killing people. Well, the readers of the New York Herald and the Daily Telegraph were thrilled. We, <laughs> we may imagine Livingston turning in his grave. And of course, by then, Livingston was indeed in his grave. But it is, of all the unexpected places in the world, in Westminster Abbey. Westminster Abbey? Uh, how on earth Livingston's mortal remains came to be there was the final utterly unexpected and extraordinary act in his transformation into a legend of the British Empire. But for that, you'll have to wait until next time at the History Café. Oh, John. There are 70 evergreen podcasts now at the History Café and reading lists for every one of them. You can find them on our website, historycafe.org, and you can also sign up for a weekly newsletter. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and many other platforms. Just look out for History Cafe Podcasts with John and Penelope. And beware of imitations. Follow our regular blog at History Cafe Pod and spread the word. <laughs>